to this week's If You Can't Pay Your Rent, Just Get Another Job edition of Spin Cycle, the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle, broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and in the studio with Crikey's Charlie Lewis this evening. How are you going, Charlie? I'm good. I'm good. Um, been a... A hectic but fun week. I got to fly out to the Sydney office to see all my crikey colleagues there because we had an event. Um, and, yeah, so I, a, an event basically around press freedom, kind of pegged on the, the Murdoch case and the conclusion of that. So we got um, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who was in very fine form that evening, uh, a Green Senator um, uh, Sarah Hanson-Young and uh, the Australian... Journalistic Freedom Alliance uh, head. That was the organisation that Peter Greste formed after he was let uh, out yes, of prison right. in Egypt. The current the current CEO of that, Leslie Power, who's a, a, a yeah, very brilliant um, media lawyer and an advocate for these things. Uh, and th- they got together with, with, with Bernard Keane, our political editor, uh, basically to talk about the the case and how that played out and also kind of other threats to, to press freedom um, in Australia at the moment, so it was, it was good. I got to have a little chat with all these these big <laughs> these big shots. I'm sure <laughs> there a was a little suit, and you know, <laughs> a lot of relief in the room. Malcolm would have been giddy to be surrounded oh, by I so mean, much anti Murdoch. Um, yeah, talk. yeah. I mean, he was very. He was. <laughs> I mean, there was so many classic um, Turnbull moments, and it, um, and I, I remember at some point him saying, "You know, we have to realise that Crikey was sued for a rhetorical flourish. It was a literary illusion." <laughs> <laughs> and, and saying and, and that the kind of like thing of like um, of learning but also charm he's like and crikey readers they're well read by definition they're well read so they would know what that reference was, it was just, uh, why uh, use one word when you can use 20 <laughs> um, we are going to be chatting to Mark Fennell about uh, his new documentary film The Kingdom which looks at um, the history of the Pentecostal church in Australia and um is a is a really interesting look about why Pentecostalism took hold, and of course, um, the rise and downfall of the of Hillsong um, amongst all of that. So, really looking forward to that chat. Um, it's been another chaotic week in the Australian media. It's like, mm. um, you know, it's like when after lockdowns, none of us knew how to communicate anymore, <laughs> and it was like everyone was just angry, crying, or drunk. Sure, It sure. kind of feels like the media's been a little bit like that. Well, I think we've had... <laughs> this week. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those weeks where suddenly a, a whole lot of simmering issues and a whole lot of intra-publication uh, um, rivalries kind of make themselves really felt uh, mm. in, in the public. I mean, so... The, well, the, the, the two I mean, I was... Yeah, yeah, like last week when we went on air the um, judgment in the Ben Robert Smith case had only like really literally just, just landed. And, yeah, actually, just we, been handed We down. still hadn't seen the full no, judgment. No, that, that was withheld yeah. until mm. Monday. So we hadn't really, we, we were just sort of, um, you know, there was this ama- amazing like outpouring even of, you know, mm-hmm. something where the no one had been able to talk about it for years really and then suddenly yeah, yeah. the the... the um, the dam had the burst. The dam yeah. had burst, which is a bad analogy given what's happened in Ukraine this week. But anyway. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, and, but since then, oh, the battle lines have been drawn. Another bad analogy given we're talking <laughs> about Christ. Ben Robert Smith and war crimes. And uh, it's been fascinating to see, you know, 
how uh, people are managing to frame him still as some kind of heroic figure mm. and um, in the media. And it seems like a lot of this is still – it's happening on ideological – sort of along ideological lines. What are you making of? of Yeah, ideological lines um, and audience lines and also um, you'd say probably commercial lines on some level. Mm. Um, uh, It's really really interesting to contrast the response to the the Ben Robert Smith verdict and the the kind of ongoing coverage that um, the Bruce Lerman trial um, has been... Uh, receiving, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. I mean, I think the um, the obvious initial take that, that, that sort of papers like, say, the Australian were, were, were always going to take, um, and and did when the the uh, judgment dropped. Um, which, by the way, we should say that essentially uh, Judge um, Anthony Bisanko found that to, uh, he, he basically felt that the the nine papers, the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and to a lesser extent the the Canberra Times, had satisfied him that they had established the um, the claims that they had made against against um but I mean most he of the went into huge amount, huge amount of detail in terms yeah, yeah, of yeah. how all the witnesses had contributed to him reaching that judgment. Yeah absolutely it was absolutely. an incredibly oh, oh, detailed yeah, yeah, response. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so after that verdict, obviously the, the, the obvious response from from the from the age and the City Morning Herald is the one you'd one hundred percent expect. Joy. Which was, was triumphant and it was it was vindicated and because they had I mean, let's not forget they had they had staked Pretty much everything on mm. this case. I mean, it's not just a case and question of resources. If if you if you lose that case, if you lose it badly, anyway. I mean, mm. if you really are, if it is shown that you have done shoddy journalism before, you've accused a the most decorated living soldier in this country of war crimes. Mm. If you lose that and you lose it because you didn't do a thorough enough job, then you, that that is that is a credibility blow that you would probably never recover from. Um, well, not never recover from, but it's a, it's a horrible, horrible blow. Mm. So th- they are 100% within their rights to to to, to revel in the moment, to, to, to bask to in the moment. It is, it is, it is um, yeah. And also, uh, I mean, there was a great piece on the weekend from Nick McKenzie um, just detailing all of Ben Robert Smith's backers. Yeah, the, the, the power behind, behind yeah. that guy. And, of course, let us not forget, one, actually one of, the, one of my favourite details in the Australian coverage that came out on that day um, <clears throat> Was that uh, Stephen Rice, uh, uh, one of the reporters in in in, um, in New South Wales, described Kerry Stokes as Australia's richest media baron, as as his as his as Kerry's as um, Ben Robert Smith's backer, and that's a lovely little tacit. Um, Acknowledgement that his boss went out of his way not to be Australian. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I mean that that does obviously come into the into it as well and a really interesting detail of the coverage that the the west trend took quite a long time to report the um the west trend and seven who are the, the mm. two media um companies that are that stokes is most heavily involved in took quite a while to come to it and, and there was very very neutral uh, channel seven literally put their headliners ben robert smith finds out verdict of his defamation trial um <laughs> And the next day when um, the West Australian published it, they did publish, you know, they put murder in, in scare quotes. They used the shot of Ben Robert Smith from the Australian War Memorial, which had already been uh, kind of marked out as controversial because they had censored the fact that he had the Crusader's cross among his insignia. So the, a very loaded... Uh, the Crusades, uh, famously, mm. a, a holy war. Yeah. Uh, he had that. In, in, a, in a photo that was taken and of him. it had him. been airbrushed out. It had been displayed in the Australian War Memorial, but they had airbrushed out that insignia. God. 
um, the the West Australian thought that was probably the best photo of them to to use, um, and so that th- so, so it's still showing him as some sort of war hero. Well, well I mean, uh, in tra- uniform, you know, it, in such some degree, some kind of neutrality anyway. Mm. Um, what so the initial obvious take from the Australian at the, on that day was the 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 sort of uh, Greg Sheridan wrote a piece about what a blow it was to the armed forces. That this had happened, and that the vast majority of Australian soldiers. Uh, yeah, I'm, it's I'm better if we don't. Know, it's better for the armed forces if we just don't find out about war crimes. Well, I, I don't. I don't know. If, I, I mean, I, I don't. I, I'm, I'll give Sheridan the benefit of the doubt here that that's not actually quite what he was arguing. He okay. was saying they, they, they have been failed by top brass. Things and I will have, admit yeah. I haven't read the piece, so I'm just <laughs> shooting off my mouth. <laughs> but and he does say uh, the, you know, um, the overwhelming majority of Australian soldiers who served in Afghanistan, who have served anywhere, have got, conducted themselves with decency and integrity, and borne risks that normal Australians never have to consider we remain in their debt. That is a, uh, a, fa- a fairly obvious take for the Australian to take and, and, and one that you can say is, is defensible. But the interesting thing in the time since then is that they've really started to emphasise, um, throw a lot, of, a lot more mud in the water. Mm. Uh, Peter Credlin in particular has really emphasised that this is a civil judgement. This is not a criminal finding. This does not meet the uh, legal requirements of beyond reasonable doubt. He was satisfied on the balance of probabilities that this had that that, that the uh, the papers had satisfied him that they had made fair allegations and they could back them up. Um, so that I suppose is I mean that also is true, but it is very interesting to have someone in the Australian media who knows how hard it is to win a defamation case if you're a publisher to say that that's not significant or not significant enough is. Is questionable. You're giving a lot of credit <clears throat> to Peter Credlin there as well. You know, I think she didn't come to the Australian media as someone who um, was assiduously upholding <laughs> no. journal- values of journalistic no, integrity. No, that's, that's, that's true. That's true. She came via, via a different route. Melbourne's own Triple R. Mark Fennell is a Walkley Award-winning journalist, interviewer, author and documentary maker with a slew of international awards also under his belt. He's worked with the BBC, Audible, Showtime, Monocle, Triple J, Channel 10, the ABC and SBS, amongst many others. (laughs) You're giggling in the background. (laughs) On topics, (laughs) topics as diverse as sex in Japan and survivors of ISIS torture. I don't know why I said it like that. His documentaries and interviews have been viewed by millions with a podcast series, Stuff the British Stole, a runaway success around the world. The Times UK has even declared him to be the cheerful Aussie version of Louis Theroux. Got to put that on your CV. We haven't even mentioned... <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop laughing in the background. No, it's good. I feel like I'm just so tempted to like. I'm playing to be like, and and you think that like qualifies you to be on a show about media? (laughs) Uh, Wait, I haven't finished, guys. Uh, Okay, okay, I'll I'll shut up. You keep going. We haven't even mentioned the dinner time TV favorite of parents everywhere, Mastermind, (laughs) which which Mark currently hosts. Uh, this Sunday, SBS will screen Mark's new doc- documentary, The Kingdom, taking a very personal look at the Hillsong Church and Pentecostalism in Australia. Welcome to Spin Cycle, Mark. Hello. Hi. It's lovely, it's lovely to be here. And thank you so much, A, for having me, but B, for reading out, like, the closest I'm ever going to get to This Is Your Life. I know. <laughs> I, felt, I felt that as I was going. I should have done the full version. That was even, that was edited, but I, I liked yeah. all those I, I like to imagine you holding a giant book and also being Peter Luck. <laughs> keep that keep that in your mind forever <laughs> I will um, 
So, uh, congratulations on The Kingdom. It's just a really interesting documentary um, and kind of atypical, which we'll get to. Um, I guess you slam an ace on the table pretty early on in the film with an old grainy photo showing notorious Pentecostal pastor Frank Houston standing alongside a a beautiful beaming young mum with a cute little kid um, before very quickly revealing that kid is you. Can you tell us about the genesis of the film and and your relationship to the Pentecostal church and to Hillsong in Australia? So uh, I am what I like to refer to as a dirty heathen these days. Um, (laughs) But I was born and raised in the Pentecostal, in a a whole series of Pentecostal churches, including the big one, which is the the church that is now known as Hillsong. And so uh, I had sort of grown up around it and I left around about the age of 19, 20. I sort of like quite quit Christianity. I haven't really talked about it ever since Mm. because it's just quite a lot of stigma attached to it. I wasn't sure it was the sort of thing I really felt like I needed to explain or even defend because the moment you kind of explain that you were part of it, you're like, I have to explain this thing. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really want that in my life. Mm. So I proceeded about my life and went off and, you know, tracked down stolen things from the British Empire and all manner of other nonsense. And uh, uh, meanwhile, I kind of saw from afar that Hillsong had become massive. I mean, it had really become... um, Honestly, it's hard to convey the enormity of what Hillsong became. Millions of people listen to Hillsong songs every week, whether they're in Hillsong Church or not. Um, They set up churches all around the US. Of course, this is the obligatory mention of Justin Bieber going to the New York Hillsong Mm. Church. But at the same time, they've had a string of massive scandals, accusations of financial impropriety, um, sexual um, impropriety. They've had serious, serious issues, and they're bleeding. Mm. They're bleeding attendees, they're bleeding money. And what's interesting happening right now is that a whole bunch of other Australian Pentecostal megachurches, some of whom who have lived in the shadow of Hillsong for many years, are essentially moving in to collect the flock. There is a changing of the guard, in effect, that we're witnessing. And I thought, that is interesting. Mm. And I know the world well enough that we can actually, that I feel like I can actually do it in a clear-eyed way. Because I will say, as a person who was raised in it, whenever I saw a news report of any kind about Pentecostal Christianity, there was always this... Look, often they were just talking... They would talk about the sex scandals or the money or the cult personality. I think those things are really important and worthy of coverage. But I think what I always noticed was underneath that was a seething sort of layer of look at these freaks and what they believe. And on the inverse of that, inside the church, there's a sort of toxic positivity in a sense where, like, there are issues that kind of get talked about in, like, small groups about... But they never kind of become louder conversations, and so they sort of get hushed. And I I thought to myself, like, oh, hold on. I'm in this weird position where I know it, I understand the world, but I'm outside, so I feel like I can do a clear-eyed job of it. Or so I thought. (laughs) Uh, We started doing these interviews with people late last year, and... I would get to the end of these interviews and I'd I'd enter sort of like a weird fugue state. (laughs) And the team, we have like a really like small team that we make docos with at SBS. And I've known, they've all known me for years and they started looking at me going, um, are you okay? And I was like, actually, I might not be. And so, and I realised I kind of struggled to put into words what I was going through because I I just ran away and I hadn't really processed any of my reasons (laughs) for leaving. And so at a certain point, they went, can we turn around the cameras and interview you? And I'm like, okay. That's so so interesting. Yeah. So the whole me component was not 
necessarily mm. the original plan. Mm. Well, I, I find that fascinating because one of the questions here that, that I have for you is there's like a transformation in you when the camera does turn on you and it, when, it, when you shift from being the narrator... Uh, even though you've already declare, declared your personal history, you're still it's you know you're still very much sort of narrating the film, and uh, there's almost like a physical shift in you when when the camera turns on you and you're talking about your his, your own history. It's like wow, okay, there's a vulnerability, at like a, a a noticeable change on screen, which I found fascinating, and which then just sort of sets the tone for the film a little bit in the sense that you know I guess people who are tuning into watch a shakedown of the Houston family or the wrongs of the Pentecostal faith or that sneering sort of, you know, outsider view that you were talking about, we'll, we'll see something incredibly different and much more nuanced and empathetic in, in the film with quite gentle portrayals of the believers in the, in the church and also conflicted. Was that, did you start out with that intention or was it once you realised that you had to become part of the story that you went further, went further into that? That's a really great and interesting question. I'm just going to, like, as a person that interviews people for a living, I'm just going to, I feel the need to announce that that was, <laughs> oh, that's where. That was a really clever and interesting question. And um, so the answer to it is this. It doesn't, it, it, we didn't magically decide to become more empathetic um, to believers because I was in it. That was something I always wanted to do from the outset, not because I wanted to give them a free ride, uh, and certainly we asked some very hard questions of a range of people of that throughout the film, but mm. I actually think the point was more... It, usually you watch reports about Pentecostal Christianity and you kind of... People, even when I was in it, I'd watch these reports and my first thought was, like, why in a million years would you ever go to these things? It looks awful. And I, think it, I thought it was important to actually explain what is it and to express why is it that people are drawn to it in the first place? What is the attraction? What holds them there? And it's not just the bright lights and the bright and, and, the, and the big music. It's actually about emotion. It's a faith built on feeling and, and, it, and a sense of belonging. And for some people, in fact, for lots of people, that is an essential part of who they are and how they live their life, and it works for them. But it was also important to go, hold on, at what cost? Who has to pay the price? for that emotional experience. And so it was kind of about going, if we're going to treat this like we would treat any other subject, we would start from a position of let's understand it and then kind of articulate the power dynamics at play. So it wasn't a function of me being in it. I didn't magically become kinder because I was in it. Um, uh, <laughs> you but you I seem did, like a pretty but, nice guy anyway, Mark. Oh, no, I'm a completely ruthless asshole. No, I'm <laughs> but I think, I think, but I understand what, you, what you're asking, though, but in the sense that I think it was the intention was to always to kind of go, there is light and, light and shade. And I think one of the complicating factors of, of, of Pentecostalism is that I think built into Christianity is this kind of interesting dynamic where anything good that happens happens because God willed it. And anything bad that happens is because the enemy, this is an attack by the enemy. Mm. I think that's a perfect set of circumstances for people to not take accountability, right? Where everything good that happens happens because God says it and everything bad that happens is being attacked. And I... I, I thought it was important to kind of put people at the centre of the story so that I guess that, that, that so that by, essentially Christians couldn't watch it and go, well, this is just another attack. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody can watch that film and go, this is an attack. And it's not about attacking. And, and I'm not interested necessarily in attacking people's faith. I am interested in interrogating this model that it has to be said, 
we bloody pioneered in Australia. You know, all these there's plenty of Hillsong docos that are out there, right? They're always American, and they always tell the story of Americans. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is this is an Australian invention, right? The, Australia didn't invent the megachurch, but in Hillsong, they may have perfected it, right? <laughs> this thing that was born in a, essentially in a, a, a on a reclaimed farm in Sydney's Hills District, we went all around the world. We have to. I'm genuinely curious. How is it? that that came to be. And with all these other churches that are stepping up, are they going to repeat the sins? And has, has anybody mm. learnt the lessons? Mm. I mean, you do talk about... Um, uh, you, you, you interviewed my, my colleague, uh, David Hardacre, um, and he yeah. makes a very striking point that um, as the, as the uh, precursor to Hillsong kind of spreads out across Sydney, that it's, it's attracting people that have, I think he described it as a little money, but a big need, that there was a search for meaning that that, that, that church was able to kind of fulfill. Um, the, which I, I suppose comes to a point that I really like to interrogate about the kind of, I guess the, the mechanisms of this stuff and to talk a bit about um, things like the prosperity gospel and the, mm. the, 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 the role of tithing in, in, in a church like Hillsong and the role that that's kind of played in both elevating them to the heights that they've reached and then perhaps in what role that's played in terms of the, the issues that we've seen afflict the church in, in recent years? I think whenever people talk about Pentecostal Christianity, there's always like a handful of like topic areas that get an enormous amount of attention. And my attitude is let's, let's interrogate why they're the things we most talk about. So money is a crucial component there. People often go, well, why would you give money to the church? It seems like a, it seems like a weird thing. And I think... But it was important to kind of showcase the, I guess, dynamics that goes into it. So tithing, as you mentioned, is a it's, a, it's, it's a biblical concept, so it's not necessarily limited to Pentecostal churches. Mm-hmm. But as with all things about the Christian faith, um, there's a 2,000-year-old book at the centre of it, and you can pick and choose which bits you choose to emphasize. Mm-hmm. And if you go to a Pentecostal church, there's, a, there's an established pattern to each one of these services. Two big songs, two sad songs, then mm-hmm. a prayer announcement. We announce all the gods, all the prayers that the gods answered in last week. Music's still swelling. Boom. That's when you ask for money. And then you have the sermon, and then you have the altar call at the end. They all fall, kind of, you know, follow the same basic structure, but money, that offering is an essential part of the mix. Now, I think what, I'm, what I think gets lost when people cover it from the outside is that and, and also particularly what gets lost when you talk about Brian Houston and Hillsong is what Hillsong and Brian pioneered as really distinctive to other forms of Pentecostalism around the world is it was this very big, shiny, positive, major chords, Instagram aesthetic <laughs> uh, version of, of Christianity. You compare it to the sort of version of Pentecostalism that was around in the US, it's a much darker fire and brimstone take. On Christianity, what what Brian and, and the the Hillsong kind of unit writ large sold was this very warm, big idea that God doesn't just want you to prosper in the afterlife. God wants you to prosper in the here and now. It's not just about money. He wants you to prosper in your relationships. He wants you to prosper in your career. And so that again, coming back to that idea I mentioned earlier, that everything's a bit externalized. Anything good that happens your income, your, your relationship is thanks to God. And there, in that circumstance, when you kind of put yourself in that mindset, the idea of giving back, giving back into the kingdom, 
suddenly starts to make a bit more sense. It's cyclical. It kind of feeds each other. Mm. And, of course, naturally, as, as has been observed, the church itself does benefit and grow from that. Now, I mean, churches of all stripes do need, like, income, right? Mm. But I think the scale of the income here and the way in which it is talked about, and if you've seen the film, you like, you know the clips, and there's some pretty galling clips in there about how people ask for money, and it's quite coercive. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that I thought was worthy of interrogating. Not just the fact that they needed money, because, like, Anglican churches need money, right? Mosques need money. Every faith group needs money. It's about how you talk about it, and do people feel like they're being coerced in that Yeah, well, I think that's one of the really powerful parts of the film is, like, taking that sort of, that big... Um, kind of conceptual idea that we have about Pentecostalism and then showing the actual human, what that means in terms of a, a human outcome. And there were two um, stories in particular that I thought were really touching. And one was, um, I've forgotten their names, but one was the young guy who, you know, got into the church and ended up, it became, you know, and especially if, you come, if you're getting into the church as a young person when you're looking for your your community and your culture and, you know, became really involved as a volunteer, but really was working for the church yeah. around yeah, the does. clock. Yeah. yeah, around the clock until until he burnt out, you know, and he was quite conflicted about that because he wanted to give and loved the church, but he literally burnt out. Too much was, was, they were taking more than he could give in a way. But there was some... amazing, yeah, there's this amazing moment where I I ask him, it's not amazing because of me, it's amazing because of the answer, um, (laughs) where I ask him, like, so are you being forced to? Do you have to? And he's like, nah, the way they talked about it, it was... Like, it's not that, that we have to do it, but isn't it great that we get to do it? Mm. I think that kind of exposes that idea of, the, like, the toxicity that lives in the heart of that positivity. It's yeah. like, it, instead of, like, framing it as, like, oh, here's the thing we have to do, everything's turned into, oh, we get to do this. Mm. I just think that in one kind of kernel kind of explains one of the kind of fundamental challenges that this particular faith needs to tackle. And then he says, so, it's so cutting, but uh, he said it, you know, all those things that they said would come to me, that, that pro- the, the prosperity, they did, but they all came after I left, you know? Yeah. Which was... But, I mean, that's more or less my story, to be honest. Powerful. Like, I, yeah, I, I must say, I had this interesting reaction to interviewing Dave, because Dave feels, I mean, we're not, we're roughly the same age, kind of look a little bit similar. I remember just sitting there going, oh, with a few different twists and turns, your life and my life would be very similar. He uh, had a beautiful yeah. apartment too, so I think I think it did come good at the end, if that was his apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, you know, pull the rug uh, uh, of theatrics away. But um, and then, but then there was, I think, quite poignantly, um, and again, my bad, I've forgotten her name, the woman who you spoke to who really did have a much more conflicted relationship with her church and did feel, I guess, was left feeling, you know, when she did see, when it was revealed, I guess, how much... Um, Brian and Bobby were just splashing on their own, you know, uh, their own kind of lifestyle and and living a life of luxury and how much she'd sacrificed in order to give the church. Um, There was something really sad about and quite poignant about that and her finding a new church at the end because she obviously really needed that spiritual connection and she had a faith and she wanted to 
you know, she, she, she needs that in her life. And when she said, you know, I didn't even know who the pastor was in the first, for the first couple of weeks and, you know, he, it, that difference between this charismatic pa- pastor who stands up in front of thousands versus this guy who will ring her because she knows what's, he knows what's going on in her life and she's like, oh, this is the way it should be. That, that idea of the charismatic leader is something that really struck me in this film because Brian Houston's not that charismatic. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, he's pretty. It's interesting. I, I've, I've I don't know. Maybe I just Brian find him creepy. Mm-hmm. I've watched a lot of Brian Houston. Well, actually, that's what I was about to say. I've watched a lot of Brian Houston of, of late, and he seems. Uh, well, I mean, a generous interpreter. I mean, he, I'm so, you're sort of limited in what you can say because he is facing court at the mm-hmm. moment. So, uh, what I will say is, um, he doesn't seem to be coping. Yeah, okay. Particularly well. Like, mm-hmm. I just. Mm-hmm. I guess that's all I would say is that. Um, when you have built this whole huge thing and you, you are used to a level of luxury that I imagine they are used to, I can only imagine what having it all sort of disappear does to a person's personality. Mm. Um, and I, prestigious I, no, I don't, as well. I, yeah, and I don't, look, I, I don't want to psychoanalyze him from afar, but I'm, I'm like, he, he hasn't spoken to any media, right? And he, and he's, but he's a little bit active on social media and he will be getting a, a result, a verdict rather, in the coming weeks, and I think what comes out of that will be really telling, mm. and 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 what he chooses to do. Now he's no longer in charge of Hillsong, uh, and what he and I should say he and his wife Bobby, they are kind of a unit, Brian and Bobby. What they do next will be um, will be intriguing. I mean, they've already done. They've, even when they were, you know, the court case was happening, they were still travelling around, speaking at churches and visiting other congregations around the world. I mean, we followed them essentially to Arizona. And talk to some some fans essentially yeah. there, and I like I, I I think I was very I think our coverage of Brian was quite measured because I think whenever somebody does a Hillsong report a report about Hillsong they always very, make it very much about these like superstar superstar pastors fall from grace and mm-hmm. I was like I mean good I mean I think it's important it's worthy of scrutiny but also there's all these uh, like actual everyday Australians and people whose lives are genuinely shaped by this thing and they never get their stories told, right? So I was sort of like, well, let's actually look at the impact on them. And you can certainly... I think what often happens for people inside the church is they watch these news stories about the the sex scandals and the money, and they're important. I just want to underline, like, those things are important, right? They, they, they're important. But I think a lot of Christians or people within the Pentecost world look at those stories and go, huh, that doesn't look anything like the church that mm-hmm. I go to. It doesn't bear any resemblance to that or the issues that I face. And I'm sort of like, I think that if you want to get to the root of what's actually happening and what's going to happen next, you kind of need to focus in on the stories of actual, like, everyday human beings uh, and kind of put that in context to paint a picture of this entire kingdom because it's actually their story, not necessarily the story of, of the superstar preachers as much. Uh, Mark, I suppose you, you sort of, as we've as we've discussed, you are one of those human beings who has... It's true, I am human. I don't know, let's go back to that intro. End of question. No, um, what I would say is that as someone who who has obviously a history with um, Pentecostalism, but has then, as you say, uh, come out the other side as a a godless heathen, did the... um, Shouldn't I? I think you should. I think you should. Um, I, I would buy one too, I guess. Um, but but I, I suppose it, the process of going through this, as you say, it was obviously 
in some ways, a deeply personal, in many ways, a deeply personal journalistic exercise. Did you come out of it at the other end changed in any way or feeling any differently about faith or in particular your relationship with it? I think my, my, my number one resolution is, is my next two, three films will not have a mark having a dark night of the soul on camera. <laughs> I, think I'm, I think I'm good for a couple of years on that front. Um, no, look, I mean, to take your question seriously, because um, it was a very, again, very good question. Um, I'm going to stop blowing smoke up your asses about your questions. About no, no, you've done, going, one, you've done one each now, so I, I think just, we're cool. I've just come up a whole day of, like, doing interviews, and these are probably the most interesting questions I've been asked, so credit where it's due. Oh, thank um, you. Keep keep yeah, take, look, keep I, talking, Mark. Keep talking. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think I think I think. Well, I think one thing is that I I really hadn't processed my reasons for leaving. So you can kind of see me do that in real time. And I, I had I had mentioned occasionally in other places, you know, in other interviews over the years, I had this background. I always I think to what happened. I casually mentioned in an interview a couple of years ago, and then a whole bunch of people on Twitter were like. That Mark Fennell, he's a happy clapper. You can't trust what he does. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. I literally said I left when I was a teenager. Uh, it occurred to me, like, how quickly people are so ready to attach. You know, how quickly people were so ready to, like, ascribe you this identity that is, mm -hmm. like, not at all who I am. And and I that made me really wary about ever doing anything. But in this context, I felt like at least I could... I knew I could control what I wanted to say a little bit. Mm. Um, but... To try and do it in a way that didn't feel too kind of curated. Um, I, I guess. Well, I guess. I believe. I don't believe in God. And I live my life as an atheist. But I do. If 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 people out there have a belief system or a set of beliefs that help them navigate this world, and they're not hurting other people, I will always kind of support them. Right, and and I think the and they will and they're not hurting other people is kind of like the crucial, like that's the active ingredient in that <laughs> sentence, right? Because I think that's where faith of all kinds kind of go wrong. It's in this active either trying to convince other people that you're right and they're wrong, or that you that so much damage is done. And I think it's it's made, I've made my peace with the fact that I don't belong there, but it has hardened my view that. It's kind of for Christians to solve. This is going to sound weird, but as much as we wanted to make a film that explained to non-Christians what that world was like, it actually kind of matters more to me that Christians watch it because it's their lives, their money, their time, their heart, their soul that's on the line. I right? think and the issues articulated affect them more than it affects anyone else. That's really interesting because as I was watching it, I was like, I wonder who, you know, obviously this is um, a, a subject with mainstream interest, but I just was watching that thinking, oh, you know, I think that there's a really strong secondary audience that this is for and this is for people who who are uh, people, people within Christianity or within Pentecostalism who almost need to feel seen and have their own struggle seen. Um well, I think that's, I mean, it's interesting, like, uh, that, that, that you're right. I, uh, the only thing I, I guess, from my perspective, I don't think you're wrong about this, but from my perspective, I don't view them as a primary and secondary audience. Yeah, okay. Because, because I think in, I mean, I guess this is uh, the way, I, I totally get what you're saying, but I, I think for me, it's like they're part of the primary audience. They always have been. Yeah. They just tune out of this stuff. Yeah. So it's, I guess it was about... Because they think they're under know, attack. Yeah, and, and I think... Look, I, um, there's going to be some people that will just you know, dismiss it out of hand because they're so used to 
dismissing this stuff out of hand. But I did want to make sure that when they did tune in, I, they felt like I like we were trying to convey accurately what the feeling is like and not make fun of them or not mm. look down on them and just go... But at the same time, the issues that's being faced within that world are serious and they're driving people to really negative outcomes. God, I sound like I'm uh, doing a survey. Negative outcomes. <laughs> um, they're driving people to really dark and awful places, right? Mm, I, mm. I think you can't ignore that. Even the most, like, you know, thrilled human being is having the best time and found their community can't deny that those... Can, they, they cannot deny other people's experiences. Um, I just think... I just think I, it's not ungodly to question. You know, it's not mm. ungodly to question is our relationship with money coercive or, or, or is our what's expected of us as volunteers uh, unreasonable and unhealthy? It's actually not ungodly, right? It actually, it's, I would argue to ask the question and to ask the questions of leadership to ask for transparency actually moves you closer to what I imagine God would want for His people. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. so I think. You know, it's, I'm in this weird position where obviously I'm a non-believer, slash dirty heathen, by the t-shirt. <laughs> but I just think you can do that. You can you can be clear-eyed and have critical eyes about the thing without without that seething sort of. I oh, look at these people who are free. So I just I just I don't know. Like it's not yeah. my way. Yeah. Um, other people might be, and there's been some particularly horrendous, salacious journalism around Hillsong in particular over the last couple of months, and I was just like. Yeah, I think we can do something that just ties and threads this specific kind of needle. And I, the show, you know, the film's really like a bit of a raw fact test, I've discovered. Like, if people have no church background, they see different things than people that have some negative church background or good church background. Like, what you bring a lot of your baggage to mm -hmm. the film, I've noticed. And that, like, it, it's been online all of, like, 24 hours. <laughs> and my Instagram DMs are just filled up with people just telling me their story. Yeah, like, that's ah, interesting. I wondered about that. that yeah, that yeah. was my next question. <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting. Like, I, I guess I sort of knew that it would happen a little bit. I did a show for the ABC a couple of years ago called The School That Tried to End Racism. Yeah, I remember. And, I, and it was, you know, it was a lovely sort of warm kind of show that with kids trying to solve racism. And I realised, and I, there was... There's like very like I'm sort of the host and I'm guiding them through it and I'm learning along the way. But I realised as soon as it came out that as soon as you do a show like that, you become a lightning rod. You become a sort of a receptacle for everyone to share their experience of racism, and it's actually quite powerful and overwhelming, I guess. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of that on crack because of <laughs> because when you show so much of yourself, that is that is saying to people, I'm you know. He, he's, he's there to listen, and I am. I'm genuinely, I, I genuinely am. There. I mean, it's my job. I ended up with a job where I sit in front of people and I listen for a living. It's, it's great, but um, I've already noticed that everyone is sort of sees it and immediately wants to share their experience. And I think that's really powerful, and I respect it and I appreciate it. I've also got to be slightly mindful of how much to take on. Yeah, you know for what sure, I mean? for sure. And yeah. also, do you want to, I mean, the, the other thing is, like, do you want to make a part two or you feel like you've closed this box now? <laughs> uh, I have no intention of making part two yeah. at the moment. <laughs> but I also, I say that with the knowledge that uh, this isn't the first film about Pentecostalism. It won't be the last, yeah. but it is mine. Yeah. yeah. It is the most me I can be. And years ago, I used to work for, um, I used to work for Andrew Denton many years ago. And he used to have this saying, like, be aggressively you. <laughs> I could just Again, imagine it in his voice. 
<laughs> yeah, you have to imagine his voice. And another thing that should probably be in a T-shirt. And, you know, it's always kind of stuck with me. And then it's a bit that, you, you know, I, I didn't... I arrived at journalism in a really weird way. Like, I, I was a film critic. I was a movie guy for Triple J, and I fell into journalism through interviewing movie stars, and, and eventually I fell into doing sort of more serious stuff. But the fact that I don't come from a newsroom background, I arrived at interviewing through sort of profile and trying to understand people, essentially, uh, and doing lots of sort of uh, sort of profile pieces on, on everyday people for the feed, which I did for SBS. Because of that, I guess my fundamental approach with stories and people and narrative is a little bit different to the way most journalism is handled. It is a little bit more human-centred, um, and I'm okay with that. Like, I really am. Like, I'm okay with it not being the sort of the, the pointy... Um, you know, take that, that's been done before because I know other people will do it and they'll do it better than I ever could. Well, I think that's what makes um, the sort of the closing of the film really powerful because you have gone all the way through being really open to hearing people's stories and non-judgmental and, you know, um, listening to even the Kingdom City, the up-and-coming um uh, you know, Pentecostal church that is looking sort of about talking about its growth in the future and being super respectful, then hearing your, um, seeing your reaction, I won't give too much away because it is the sort of climax of the film, when you actually sit through a service makes it really powerful because you're, you know, you are having a really, um, you know, an incredible reaction to an experience of your childhood. It's, you know, it's a, it's a really great film and I want to thank you so much and I know you have to put your kids to bed. <laughs> We've been... The most, again, the most likeable reason to have to cut our interview short. <laughs> We've been... probably already failed as a parent. <laughs> thank you so much. No, We've been... You know what, I've still got time to put one of them to bed. So okay. Oh, okay, great. We've been talking to Mark Fennell about um, hashtag dirty heathen. You've heard it here first. Uh, about uh, the new, his new documentary film, The Kingdom, which is available now to stream via SBS On Demand or for you old school uh, terrestrials. It's uh, screening on Sunday evening at 7.30pm on SBS. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, Mark. You two are both an absolute joy. You, you both should do this, this, this talking and journalism thing for a living. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that on board. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Thank you so much, mate. Thank you. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <sighs> That's right. Triple R. There's nothing that gives me more joy than seeing someone come to the oeuvre of Carolyn Calloway yes. for the very first time <laughs> and just watching you, Charlie, then read... Her Wikipedia page yeah, I mean, was I'm, just a sheer delight. She was one of those figures who you're kind of dimly aware of that yeah. you kind of encounter and you you, you hear things. But it just I, I have no excuse, unfortunately, to <laughs> delve into these things. Well, I'm bringing her right to your doorstep because so, there's a great um, – there's a fantastic. Every she reemerges every six months or so with something, and yeah. uh, the something at the moment is a fantastic um, Vanity Fair piece, which has just dropped, uh, titled "Carolyn Calloway Survived Cancellation." Now she's doubling down, um, and the reporter Lily Analik essentially spent, I think, I don't know, six months or something, trailing Carolyn wow. writing this piece, and I think it just did a number on her brain. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. For people who, and it, it, when you have been following her for a while, you understand why. For people who might not be familiar with Carolyn Calloway, she's, um, I guess she was, she rode the wave of uh, Instagram 
really um, when it was when it was their moment, the Instagram kind of post moment in the early two, mm-hmm. 2010s, she was documenting her romantic and social life in, at Cambridge University with, um, you know, whimsical photos and, and these incredible photos of parties and long, very personal captions. Yes. Um, she, Cam- beca- she became known as the, as the Gatsby of Cambridge. That's I've, right. I've just found out. She became known <laughs> as the Gatsby of Cambridge. Uh, and, you know, it looked like um, she was sort of the next, um, you know, hardworking, smart, together it girl who would use social media as her launch pad into, you know, some sort of slick media career. But uh, it wasn't to be um, – well, in fact, at first it looked like that. But until 2016 she was given a book deal. She was due to publish her memoir titled And We Were Like – that was it uh, – with <laughs> Flatiron Books – but things began going off the rails when she cancelled her book deal the following year. She'd spent the advance and this all became incredibly public through her, just a series of just messy Instagram stories. Uh, so then she started hawking these writing workshops that that was like the literary fire festival on a very the, small The fire scale. festival is, is my, one of my all-time <laughs> obsessions. I, I think about the fire festival every week. <laughs> well, if you could imagine an incredibly messy wannabe it girl well, in if New you, York City. You could City. imagine someone who, who came to Providence because their, their, their Instagram captions had to be ghostwritten well, then trying to teach people was, how to write. Yeah, so she was teaching people how to But then she had these like mason jars filled with, I don't know, butterflies or some shit, whatever. Anyway, that <laughs> fell apart. Uh, she was also hawking candles and artwork online. At one point, um, she even sold a product that she called snake oil. I know. i got to respect that. Yeah, I think once exactly. you lean into it that hard, it's kind of... Yeah. So, well, uh, and she so she positioned herself as a writer, but she kind of never wrote anything. And, the, and her, <laughs> her grift was then busted open a little bit more when her former friend, Natalie Beach, uh, wrote an article for The Cut titled, I Was Carolyn Calloway, claiming she had ghostwritten these Cambridge era (laughs) Instagram posts, like, what? Um, Whilst Carolyn uh, was addicted to Adderall and she, Natalie, was quite introspective about that because she she claimed that um, she might have introduced Carolyn to Adderall. Anyway, essentially she is this um, grift performance artist that just keeps on giving and at various times... Um, throughout her career, she has managed to loop people into this, into her kind of world yeah, to yeah, yeah. to tell her story. So she clearly hasn't managed to quite get the writing thing happening. She keeps saying she's going to um, uh, release books, biographies. One, the most recent one, I think she's calling it Grifter or something like that, um, which is just brilliant. Um, but and it feels like this Vanity Fair writer Lillian Anolik is the latest to be sucked into her vortex. Right, and interesting. The piece is amazing because um, it's got things in it, choice quotes in it, like um, from Carolyn. Um, she says, "I want to be an it girl. It girls are startups, and startups need funding." <laughs> <laughs> and and she says, nothing but writing a book could ever make me a writer. But being there with the right people in the right places could make me in a much better position culturally for when my book does come out. You know, she's got all these ideas about... And in the end, Lily sort of starts believing it and she's like, oh, oh there's a great piece actually um, <laughs> uh, where she, she talks about... Um, oh, it's amazing. She says... Uh, over a Zoom, I noticed that she keeps... This is Lily talking about mm. Carolyn. I noticed that she keeps pausing to suck on a lemon wedge. 
I ask her what she's doing, what she's doing. She's just taken mushrooms, she explains, <laughs> and the lemon enhances the mushroom's potency. I express irritation because I'd blocked out two hours for this interview <laughs> and now she was going to be too high to answer questions. <laughs> no, no, she answers me. She won't be too high to answer questions. Five minutes later, she whispers, I'm too high to answer questions. <laughs> it's just brilliant. And then by the end, Lily's writing things like, it could be argued that Carol Calloway is a writer, a new kind of writer, a writer who'll never finish a book because to finish a book is to kill the story. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, I think I, I sort of, I, I know what the, the right, I mean, again, I, I, I have not read this piece, so I... I it's, it's great. You've I, got to read it. I, I, I really feel like I, I literally I, I need sat to read and it. looked yeah. at the wall for a few minutes afterwards. <laughs> I was just like, what, what, what did I just read? But of course, I think like Calloway, I suppose, is, an, is, a, is a figure worthy of interrogation in the same way that the Fire Festival was. It's a very, an extremely modern um, uh, phenomenon where you've, you've got someone who is able to build and build and rebuild a public, a public kind of facade. And it doesn't matter how many times the, the old one gets crushed or is proven to be fraudulent, you just build another one. Yeah. I think, she's, is, is she's it, actually really unique, I think. Is there a line in it um, that says... If you can avoid being cancelled, avoid it. But if you've been cancelled, you may as well get cancelled again. Yeah, yeah, it's like, like go hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nad Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via on demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. 